Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Good morning. How are you guys doing today? You're looking good. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision, or at least that's like one of my jobs. I have a side gig that a lot of you maybe don't even know about. Um, it's true. In my spare time, I volunteer as a mascot. I am Webster the Wildcat for Windsor Elementary School. That's me in there. And you're probably wondering, how do you even get into something like that? It's quite a coincidence, actually. Uh, What happens is your wife becomes president of the PTA, and then you are the mascot whenever they need one. You don't even have to sign up for it. You just get told. And a couple weeks ago, I was gifted with the opportunity to be Webster while Jenny went around to all the classrooms talking about this upcoming school fundraiser and showing the kids the prizes they could win if they raised money for the school. And we walked into a kindergarten classroom about halfway through the experience and something happened. I felt a sneeze coming on that I could not stifle. So I quickly assessed the situation. I was like, if this was a fifth grade classroom, I'd just pop off the head. They're all old enough and smart enough to know some dude is inside that costume. And if I was by the hallway, I could sneak out there real quick, sneeze and come back in. But unfortunately, I was surrounded by kindergartners. And this may come as a shock to you, but it's not easy to see in that thing. And I don't want to stomp on anyone. And I also felt like that could be pretty traumatizing for a bunch of little kids if the wildcat just ripped off its head in the middle of their classroom. So I went for it. I just sneezed straight into that mask and there's not a lot of space in there. It was just wet. For the next half an hour, everything was just wet. And that has nothing at all to do with the point of my story this morning. I just wanted to let you know because misery loves company and I had to suffer it, so you do too. Sorry. Anyways, after I dried off my face and stuff, I was reflecting on the experience and I thought, man, elementary school students got really fired up about the stupid trinkets that they could win raising money for the school. Like if some kid raised $100 and won all the prizes, it would be worth like 10 bucks combined. You could save $90 and a whole lot of time just going to Walmart, but they were really fired up about getting like finger lights and poppets and stuffed animals. And right as I was about to judge the youths of today for being shallow and materialistic and dumb, I had a flashback to going to like Chuck E. Cheese as a kid and showbiz before that. Who remembers showbiz? Yeah, I know every single time I walked into those places, I was convinced like if I could hit a couple jackpots, roll a few consecutive 50s at skee-ball, then the prize I will win will make me truly happy forever. We've all been there, right? Just believing if we can get a whole string of these tickets, oh man, life will be better for us. And I think every dad in here probably needs to confess, too, that we've had moments where we just wanted to shove our kid to the side and be like, no, you're not whacking enough moles. Here, let me help you get more tickets. And because what our kids most desperately need is tickets, not memories, right? And we know better, but it's hard to remember in the moment, especially when you're a kid, you never, ever leave feeling fully satisfied, but you walk in every time thinking, this time, this time, oh, I'm going to get the prize that will actually satisfy my soul. And it's funny to look back as an adult at the futility and stupidity of that. But let me throw this out there this morning. 
I don't think most of us have moved as far beyond that line of thinking as we'd like to believe. The only thing that changes as we grow older is what the tickets look like. We're just like, oh, you know what? If I can play the game right, if I can get enough tickets, then I'm going to get the stuff that will make my soul truly happy. If I, can just, if I can just hit the jackpot over here, if I can do it right over here, then I can collect enough to buy security and buy safety, and it's going to be life-changing stuff. But the problem is that these tickets and the tickets I accidentally dropped on the ground are a whole lot more alike than we want to believe. They both promise stuff that they can't deliver. We get caught up believing time and time again they'll give us the things that really matter, but all we're left with in the end is the same exact pile of nothing and dissatisfaction. Just a bunch of stuff that brings momentary happiness for a temporary period. I mean, think about it for a second. How many of the things that you just had to get, that you convinced yourself you needed in order to be happy a decade ago, do you still use? Or still even have? We're in a series called Paper Walls, and if you're new to revision or you missed last week, what we're talking about is some of the biggest, scariest obstacles in our lives that hold us back from living into the purpose God says he has for us. And what we're discovering is that even though from a distance they look like walls, they're actually made out of paper. If we get up close and push, they're pretty flimsy, and God wants us to break through them because he wants to liberate us from the limits they put on our lives. And this morning I want to talk about something that shows up in every single study across every single demographic in our culture as one of, if not the greatest source of worry, destroyer of relationships and cause for anxiety. It's money. Listen, money's not just an obstacle. Money is a liar. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. Jesus warned that money is deceitful because it tends to trick us into thinking it's got a mind of its own. Like, if we're not careful, it'll just somehow evaporate. It'll, it'll vanish. And all we did was run a short little errand to Target, and now it's gone. Because I have sat as a pastor heartbreakingly with so many people whose lives and relationships are being devastated by money. And these are like rational, bright adult human beings with good jobs who are like, I don't know, Mike, it just vanished. Like the money I set aside from the mortgage, it just, it just disappeared. The money I was going to give to the church, because God says we ought to be giving to orient our hearts toward gratitude and generosity, it got prematurely raptured, man. It just, it just disappeared into the sky. The, that money that, that I needed, I don't know where it went. And we convince ourselves that money is like clever and sneaky and it does things. Sometimes it misbehaves. It just goes where it wants and doesn't go where we put it. But the problem is we like believing that. I do. Something inside us likes thinking that way about money because it allows us to be dissatisfied and frustrated and anxious about our finances while believing the whole time that the problem isn't with us, it's with, with money. And that any place we don't have enough or we, we feel like we haven't been given enough, that must be an issue with God's provision rather than our behavior or our faith. Like the prevailing sentiment in 21st century America is that happiness is found in getting more than what I currently have, no matter how much I currently have. And that mindset is so prevalent in our culture that if money doesn't feel frightening to you, if money doesn't feel like this wall that's cutting you off from the life you want, and if it's not scary and you have no anxiety about it, you're weird. 
And this morning, I want to set us all free to be weird. Normal is not working, so it's time to be weird. And if we want to do that, we got to learn to see money the way God does. And we're in luck because God talks about money in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, beginning to end over 2,000 times. And even though God talks about it that much, it's still weird as a pastor to talk about because you know it makes people uncomfortable. You know that when the word money gets spoken in a church, this alarm bell goes off in the back of people's minds because churches have done it badly in the past. This is all the church just wants my money. But I promise you today, I am not after your finances. I'm after your freedom. I think I'd be a bad leader if God talked about something that often and I avoided it and I let you stay trapped within the prison of those paper walls because I didn't want to be uncomfortable, right? There's a reason, though, that God talks about, that, uh, talks about money that much. There's a reason Jesus talks about money more than he talks about heaven and hell combined. It's because he knows that for many of us, money is his number one competitor for our souls. It is the singular thing that most threatens his place on the throne of our lives because we're tempted to put our faith in money and the things that it promises us and the things that it says it can deliver. And God warns us over and over and over again that we shouldn't do that because allowing money to become our God is incredibly destructive to our souls. We were created to live in a way where money serves us and helps us serve God. But make no mistake, we live in a world that pushes us to flip the script upside down in a way where we want God to serve us while we serve money. And the only place that ever leaves us is a place of emptiness and fear. Jesus addresses this whole line of thinking in Matthew chapter 6. It's the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest message ever preached. Thousands of people are gathered to hear Jesus, and he's telling them, hey, this is who God is. This is who God created you to be. This is how you can break through some of the paper walls that are cutting you off from the life you were made to live. And in verse 19, he starts talking about money. And so if you have a a Bible or a Bible handy, you can crack it open to the book of Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. If you don't have one, no worries. The words are going to be up on the screen. And if you need one or your kids need one, we have Bibles, we have reading plans in the back. We love it when they disappear. Please snag one before you leave today. But this is what Jesus says about money. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Like, where's your treasure? Where is your heart most desperately bent in the world? It's a powerful question to try to ask ourselves. And it makes a difference. And this morning, I want to talk a little bit about this dichotomy of storing up treasures on earth versus storing up treasures in heaven. Because I think if our hearts aren't in the right place, our entire lives can be aimed in the wrong direction. And Jesus is getting at something really profound here. He says, look, I know you're human beings. You're created in the image of God, but you're living in a shattered world, which means there are things your souls desire that you can't quite get a grasp on. And for all of us, there's stuff our souls want. There's stuff our souls need. There's stuff that we're, we're built for. And one of the reasons money is such a powerful idol in our lives, one of the reasons it so threatens to become a God is that it often promises us those things. But the truth is, money promises what only God can deliver. 
It actually promises us a, a whole bunch of stuff, but this morning I want to look at three things I think we're built to want that money promises us that only God can deliver. Satisfaction. Like if I get enough money, I'll be happy. Safety. If there are enough zeros in my bank account, I will be safe from whatever comes my way. I'm going to be protected in significance. If I can just collect enough, then my life will really matter. We want those things. We want satisfaction. We want security. We want significance. But when we decide that money is the thing that's going to deliver it to us, then we orient our lives around collecting treasures here on earth where Jesus says moths and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. And we do that to the exclusion of living lives in the direction of what really matters and what really echoes for eternity. We do it because our hope has migrated from our Messiah to our money, from our Savior to our stuff. But it's easy in these places where our souls desperately want what we don't have to allow our hope to migrate. Like, like satisfaction, we've all fallen for this one, right? Like if I could just get that, oh man, I could breathe a little bit easier. Like I, I need to buy that dress because it matches the shoes that I already bought, which match the bracelet that I got half off. I'd be losing money if I don't buy the dress. I don't want to, oh, you know? Or like, oh man, if this house just had a fifth bedroom or a third bathroom, if I could got that shiny truck, if I could get that watch that will sync to my phone, that will sync to my tablet, that will sync to my computer, then everyone will like me and I can get a date for homecoming and I'll be happy because I'll get married. But if I don't get the watch right now, I'm going to be forever alone and my life will be a disaster. Like, it sounds ridiculous when I say it up here, but every single one of us has believed it. Every single one of us has lived like, oh man, just that one more thing will finally check the box for me. And stuff just leaves us empty. It leaves us wanting more and more stuff because it cannot fill the void. Only more Jesus can fill that void. But what about security? Money really does provide that, right? Like how many of you feel completely financially secure? Hypothetically. If tomorrow your house burned down, your parents had to be put in an assisted living facility and you got diagnosed with cancer, who in here thinks you got enough commas in your bank account to just cover that? Not very many of us. Like, we believe so often because the world tells us that money will keep us safe from whatever comes our way, but we all know deep down there are things we cannot buy our way out of. And so if our sense of security in this life is built on the gifts rather than the giver, if our sense of hope for the future is built on a number in a bank account rather than the one who holds the future, we are always going to have this hole in our lives and money will be a source of anxiety we never get rid of because it cannot fill the hole. What about significance? This idea that like if we can accumulate enough stuff, if we can collect enough points on the scoreboard of this world, then our lives will really matter. Then they'll count for something. Then we'll be important and we'll be able to leave a legacy because the amount that we leave to the next generation is our legacy, right? Look, all of us know people who lived and died believing that and they were quickly forgotten while somebody spent the money they accumulated. And we also know people like Mother Teresa who lived in poverty, but they left quite a dent with the life they had on this planet. I don't know about you guys, but I hope when I die, my life counts for something more than a number I died with that I left to my kids. It's hard though. Jesus looks at us and he's like, don't get caught up believing that stuff. 
Money will fight for control of your life. Money will continually promise what only God can provide. But it'll blind you if it does. And in verse 22, he says something kind of weird. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? This is an odd illustration to throw right in the middle of a teaching about money. But what Jesus is saying is that stuff will blind us. It'll blind us to the reality of our lives. And in so doing, it will not only cut us off from living fully, it'll do damage to the way we relate to everyone else around us. And so we got to see the light or else we're going to live blind. And he drives that home by laying it out pretty clearly. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is a pretty heavy statement. Jesus doesn't leave us a lot of wiggle room. He draws a pretty clear dividing line and says it's a binary choice. This is an either or. There is no sharing of the throne. You can't serve God and serve money at the same time. They don't play nicely together. And the thing is, God designed us to live these lives where our stuff is supposed to equip us to pursue our great purpose and to make a difference in the lives of the people around us and to rewrite the future by pointing people toward him. But our world pushes us to get it twisted and try to get God to serve us so that we can serve money. I know there are probably a bunch of us in here thinking, yeah, 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 I've sometimes spent too much. I've sometimes got caught up believing that money would provide me what I know it can't provide me, that it'd be my source of significance or, or security or satisfaction, but it's not like I'm serving money. Like, I don't think it's actually a false God for me. It's not on the throne of my life. I'm, I'm chasing it, but I'm chasing God too, and I'm like, ah. It's, it's not something I'm worshiping. It, it doesn't have that much control over my soul. I think that's our natural reaction. Let me throw this out there this morning. When I read the Bible, and I could be way off, all right? But when I read the Bible, I tend to assume Jesus isn't an idiot. I don't know how you read it, but that's how, that's how I read it. And if that's true, and Jesus isn't stupid, and he knows what he's talking about, then what that means is that you and I and every single person around us in this room right now are way more likely to let money take over the throne of our lives from God, to worship it, to serve it, and to orient our lives in its direction than we'd like to think we are, because Jesus sure seems to think we are. He sure seems to think that this is a significant danger in our lives, and that's why he talks about it so much. And for what it's worth, I think if you've ever bought something you didn't really need with money you didn't really have, to impress people you don't even like, money might have a little control over your soul. If you ever told your 10-year-old you're just a really short or you're just a really tall eight-year-old for the day so you could get a cheaper meal at Village Inn or a cheaper ticket to Adventureland, if you've ever, you know, downloaded music that you didn't pay for or cheated in a class so you could get that scholarship because that scholarship's going to get you into that college which will get you that job that you needed. If you've ever, ever been dishonest at work and, and haven't provided the goods or services that you promised and you took somebody's money, any of that probably means that money has more mastery over your life than you've liked to believe for a really long time. 
Or even if you're a workaholic or a studyaholic and you're like, it's a season. It's just a season. I got to chase this right now in this season so that once I build all of this, then that season will be over. And I'm going to neglect the people around me. I'm going to let those relationships suffer so that I can chase this just for, for now. Then maybe money has got this deep grip on your soul. And maybe life will be better if you were set free. Maybe it's become a false God that is promising you what only the one true God can provide you. And here's something I've learned in my life. If money is a source of fear or anxiety or frustration for you, I pray you learn it. And for all the kids in here, if you're in like middle school or, or high school or elementary school or college, and you're like, I don't know if this is really my thing. I don't think about money that much right now. Like, I promise you it's coming. And if you learn this early, it will help you. Because there's not one person over the age of 20 in here who would not say, if I could go back, I would do some stuff differently with money. Right? All the adults in here with me on this, like there is not one of us who wouldn't do it differently. And if you can learn this and get it right, right at the beginning, it will help you out. And here's what I know. Money makes a great servant. It can equip you to do all sorts of impactful things, but it makes a terrible God. It's a cruel, cruel master. And God makes a terrible servant. He doesn't obey ever. I've been telling him what to do my whole life. He's worse than my kids. He doesn't listen. That's not how he rolls. God is a terrible, terrible servant, but he makes a pretty great God. Money makes a terrible servant, but a great God. And God makes a terrible servant, but a great God. And if we can get this dynamic right, if we can decide instead of trusting in riches, we're going to trust in the one who richly provides, then a couple things will happen in our lives, no matter how much we do or do not have. And the first one is that our anxiety about money, our sense that it's a wall cutting us off, will begin to fade. Money really will begin to feel like a paper wall and also will find incredible purpose as we begin to see what God's placed inside our hands no longer as our source of life, but as a resource he's given us to breathe life into the people around us, to live out our created, creative purpose in ways that help people crash into Jesus and literally create a better future for all the people we're crashing into every single day. Like when we're able to, to get beyond just wasting our lives away, storing up for ourselves, we're set free. And let's have a real honest moment, right? Your job, your house, your car, one day that's going to be somebody else's job somebody else's house, and somebody else's car. We can't take any of it with us. But when we begin to view money through God's lens, we stop storing up these temporary treasures and we begin storing up treasures in heaven. And real quick, I want to talk about what that looks like because I think it's a theory. Like, what does it mean to, like, store up a treasure in heaven? That seems difficult to grasp. But I think Jesus makes it pretty clear here how we can do it as, as he lays out this dichotomy that there are basically two ways to orient your life. You can either orient your life around storing up for yourselves treasures here on earth or you can orient your life in the direction of meaning and impact that echoes for eternity. You just can't do both. I think what's really cool about what Jesus is saying is that if you chase the stuff, eternity doesn't get thrown in. But if you chase the impact, sometimes the blessings of the world get thrown in right alongside it. It just matters where your heart is and where your treasure is because your treasure cannot be in two places. God and money will not share the throne. And so how do we make sure God's on the throne? Well, we live in the United States of America. We know exactly what it looks like to put money on the throne of our lives. It means orienting our calendars around chasing it 
and getting as much of it as possible so that we can benefit from it as much as possible. So what does it look like when God's on the throne of our lives? It looks like orienting our calendars toward chasing Jesus and getting as much of him as possible. And again, we're we're Americans. We know what it looks like to store up treasures for ourselves here on earth. If I had to sum it up in one word, I would say it's accumulation. It's get stuff. More stuff, shiny stuff, better stuff. Get, get, get. And then cling to it as tightly as you can cling to it. And if Jesus says... Right, that storing up treasures in heaven and storing up treasures on earth are mutually exclusive, that living for right now and living for eternity just don't vibe with one another, and the way we store up treasures on earth is to get, then how do we store up treasures in heaven? Every kindergartner across the hall could answer this right now. Like our own inability to see it clearly is just because we're so enculturated into this materialistic society. If the opposite of getting stuff for ourselves is what sets us free, then the answer to freedom is giving things away. If I had one word that could sum up what storing treasures in heaven looks like, it would be distribution. It means taking what God has placed into our hands and distributing it for the sake of the world, for the sake of the people around us. Give, give things, more things, better things, big things, shiny things. Give, give, give. And that means making some sacrifices on occasionally. If we're gonna live with a distribution mindset, We're not going to be able to accumulate everything we want to accumulate. But that's okay. We don't have to acquire everything we admire, right? If we did, I'd have a whole room in my house full of Jordans. Like every colorway of the 11 breads. It would be my house. But we we can admire cool things that we don't own. And I know that's radically countercultural. It is. But so is seeing money like a paper wall instead of allowing it to be a prison we live in that crushes us with fear, ruins our relationships, and leaves us constantly worried and dissatisfied. Like, I don't want to live like that. I've spent too much of my life living like that. I'm ready for Jesus to set me free. But if we look at money through his eyes, through his lens, then instead of seeing it as this thing that might maybe, even though it hasn't ever been in the past, might maybe in the future be a source of security and significance and satisfaction, we can see it as an opportunity God has placed in our hands to bless the people around us and also as a gift God's given us to bless us. Like when we live, when we give generously and sacrificially, what it demonstrates to a watching world is that we really do love Jesus more than we love ourselves. That we really do care about the people around us more than we care about our own comfort. It demonstrates to a world yearning to breathe the oxygen of God's love that as God's people, we actually believe he is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he'll do. That's what generosity does when we live with open hands. It makes a difference, not only in our lives, but in the lives of everybody around us. And I know it's easy to hear that and think, oh yeah, I wanna live like that someday. Like, oh man, I, I want to do that. I, I want to be generous. I want to put my hope in Jesus. I want to live in a way that shows the people around me that I trust Jesus, that I love Jesus more than I love me, that I believe God is who he says he is. And once I get my finances all ironed out, I'm going to start living like that. Like after I check off all these boxes, then I'm going to be ready to be generous. Like someday, but Creedence Clearwater Revival said it best, someday never comes. I promise if that's the way you think right now, someday is never, ever going to come in your 
life because this has absolutely nothing to do with your financial situation and absolutely everything to do with your faith in Jesus. And I get it that as 21st century Americans, we hear that and we doubt it. We're like, nah, that can't be true. It's got at least a little bit to do with my financial situation. I can't wrap my mind around that. But what I can tell you right now is that there are over a billion people on this planet gathered to worship this morning who live outside of the wealthy Western world and exemplify that truth every single day of their lives. I've sat in shacks in Mexico. I've been in tarp shelters in Haiti where people are sleeping on the mud literally praying for their daily bread because they're subsistence farming and they don't know if it's going to come tomorrow and they cling to nothing. Everything God places in their hands, they use or they give. And I promise you those people are living freer than anyone I've ever met in the land of the free. They are liberated because they know where their hope ought to lie. It has not migrated from their Messiah to their money or their Savior to their stuff. They know who holds their future and they live free. And I so desperately want that for all of us. Because when we live with open hands, when we say, God, look, you put it all in there in the first place. Take what you want back out. I'm, I'm, I'm willing then what we'll find is that he always provides on the backside of that. Not always what we want, not always how we want, not always when we want, but always enough. Every single time, it's enough. And the crazy thing about that is when we begin to live this way with open hands, what we find is that God really does want to bless us. That, that he wants to give us good things and he wants us to enjoy life. And if we're willing to give him back whatever he asks for, then we don't have to have guilt anymore about spending whatever he gave us. You can get a new car. You can get a cool house. You can go see the beautiful places God made. If you've seen creation, there's so much cool stuff all around the world. Go, look at it, spend it. As long as you're willing to give God whatever he asks, whenever he asks for it, you don't gotta feel bad about spending the rest of it that he put in there. Doesn't mean we gotta blow our money, but like when God asks, if you say sure, then we don't have to feel bad about the idea that God blesses us like crazy. Not anymore, not again. It's just sometimes God asks and you gotta give a little over here. And sometimes he asks and you gotta give a little over here. And then sometimes he asks and you thought you had this much margin, but God thought you had this much margin and you gotta swallow big to write that check. It's not fun. But you know what we do? We just make it rain. We make it rain for the sake of Jesus because God asks us to make it rain even when it's raining more than we want. And we're like, I was hoping for a shower, not a thunderstorm, Lord. And God's like, thunderstorm. And when we do it, what we find is that he provides everything we need. I've seen it in my own life again and again and again and again. And I desperately want it for all of us because I think money is a prison that's holding us back, that's wrecking the way we relate to each other, that's ruining marriages, that's ruining relationships, that's ruining jobs, that's ruining our satisfaction, that is literally a wall keeping us from the meaning and the hope Jesus made us for. But it's a paper wall and we can break through. And I think, you guys, this is something God wants for you, not from you. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how everything God asks from you is tied to what he most desperately wants for you. Like he wants to set you free from being scared of scarcity, from like living in the prison of anxiety over his provision. And he knows the only pathway to that freedom, the only way you can live feeling truly satisfied, secure, and significant is to anchor your life on the giver, not the gifts. That's why the Bible talks so much 
about money because money and God are going to fight every single day of your life. This isn't a one-time decision. This is an everyday decision. Money and God are going to fight every day to sit on the throne of your life. But there's no escaping the truth that money makes a great servant but a terrible God. And God makes a terrible servant and a great God. And so you just trust him today. Test him on it. This is the one place in the Bible, God knows, because it has such a powerful impact on our lives. It's such a powerful temptation to take over his spot. And God knows that. This is the one place where he says, test me on this and see what I'll do. Try it out and just see if I won't provide. Will you trust him today? Will you come with open hands and say, God, thank you for what you've given me. Take whatever you need. And I know it's not easy. Our world's going to constantly tempt us to get it twisted and to start believing that, that these tickets are different than, than those tickets and that they won't leave us empty in the end. But I believe if we're willing to set God on the throne of our lives and to chase him, then what we'll find as we come to him with open hands is that like the ability to distribute rather than accumulate evaporates our fears and fills us with meaning and purpose and hope and life and the ability to live in a way that echoes for eternity because that's what God made us for. We you guys pray? Lord, thanks for who you are. Thank you for the blessings that you give us for the way that you provide time and time and time again. And we come to you as Americans who live in a world that has a deep and unyielding bent toward materialism, toward the idea that money can deliver everything we most deeply desire. But would you thunder in our souls today? Would you remind us that when our hope migrates, we end up with a hope that's placed in hopelessness? Would you help us see who you are and how you love? Would you help us actually trust that you are good and that you will provide And would you, as we believe that and as we live it out, as we begin to release the things we've been clinging to and trust that you are the great provider, would you use us and work through our lives to make a difference in the lives of the people around us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.